So welcome back everyone. The theme today is a continuation of what we've been doing the last uh, few weeks. And I was telling Levi that I feel uh, excited about the session today because in a way it's integrative. We're bringing a lot together. The theme will be how do we combine inner practice and skillful outer action in challenging situations involving speech or communication. So we're building on what we've been exploring for much of this series, which I have started uh, several months ago uh, under the larger topic of deepening our practice during the pandemic. And for, I think about the last five sessions, been focusing on skillful speech. I'm understanding practice, to really write something I've, I've said the last two times, I'm understanding practice in a broad sense, that in which we're bringing together a sense of formal practice and formal meditation on the cushion, as it were, but we're also connecting that with our relational lives, our lives with others, and calling that a form of practice. We might call that informal practice, could also include the time that we're just uh, doing errands around the house, whatever, uh, around the wherever we live. And then thirdly, there's a sense of practice as our involvement and sometimes action within the larger, within the larger um, social realm. This could include our work, our activism, our could be our participation in a broader community. And so there's a sense of all three of those being practiced. And um, often we focus a little more narrowly on the formal practice. I want to have that broad sense. And what I have found over the years is that the principles of skillful practice hold pretty much the same principles hold across each of those areas of practice. So what we find useful in uh, being skillful in speech with one person, the core principles actually generally will be applicable, although there are nuances and complexities in a larger social setting. That's what I have found over the years. So we've had already, uh, I think, five sessions on skillful speech in this context. We spent some time looking at what I'm calling the three foundations for wise or skillful speech, looking at the uh, ethical guidelines to be truthful, helpful, come out of a good heart, and have uh, appropriateness of the speaking, especially good timing. Um, you know, we went into more detail on those in an earlier session and also in the book that I did, The Engaged Spiritual Life, I have uh, quite a bit of detail on those guidelines. A second foundation of skillful speech is being present as we speak. You can even explore that right now. It's easier when you're receptive. Can you, even as you listen, and maybe some may be taking notes, can you also have some present-centered awareness. Notice what's going on. It could be a simple technique of simply being aware of the ha hands 
and the feet, could be aware of your body in some way, could have 10 or 20% of the attention on the body. That's a, a good way to start. It's easier when we're not having to be active. Some of my practice as a teacher is to be present as I'm speaking right now. So I try to do that. I'll have to remind myself from time to time. If I notice I'm off, I'll stop. One of our main techniques for skillful speech is pausing, doing a kind of pause and reset. Big, uh, important uh, technique in all sorts of ways in our, in our lives to, to have pauses, whether 10 seconds or a minute or whatever. And we also, thirdly, looked at empathy as a foundational capacity. And I was thinking of empathy as an explicit practice. Uh, we can also see it more in the um, psychological literature as a innate capacity. But, but I like to think of empathy as an explicit practice because as we've seen in some of the uh, explorations of empathy, uh, if empathy is an innate capacity, it's not necessarily that the information that we have about, let's say, another person's emotions or the meaning of their thoughts and so forth uh, can be misused. We can be empathic, but also manipulate people. And the example I've given often is of some politicians can know what people are thinking and feeling and use that knowledge for manipulative purposes. In a sense, they're still being empathic, but it's not an explicit practice of uh, being empathic with the intention of understanding and connecting. So that's how I'm defining empathy as an explicit practice. It has the intention to understand and connect with another. So it's different in a sense from empathy as an innate human capacity for most people, unless there's certain uh, damage to the brain or with some psychological uh, issues, uh, there, the empathy can be lacking as well. And so we've broadened that looking at uh, skillful speech and named a number of ways that there can be challenges. And we've looked at ways that we can work with challenges to speech. And um, several of the last times I've asked people to name, and last time we were able to uh, uh, make a copy of the chat uh, and all the people answering. So I just wanted to name some of what people indicated were challenges, maybe bring in a few from the, uh, the other times. But a lot of these are very obvious. What makes our speech and communication difficult or challenging? Uh, it might be because uh, I have difficult emotions. I get reactive. You know, I had a very interesting experience maybe four or five years ago, maybe longer, for this Wednesday gathering. Um, periodically, I would ask people, what do you really want to talk about? You know, give me some guidance for the themes that you'd like to, to have us explore. We haven't done that here. Maybe we can do that sometime soon. Anyway, at the top of the list was how to be with so-called difficult people, right? And of course, the difficult people in most cases were not the people who were requesting that. So it was other people are difficult. You know, I'm just 
cool or whatever. Anyway, and so we looked at that, and one of the um, initial insights, sort of what we sometimes call um, a blazing insight into the totally obvious, is that what? how do we define a difficult person? Putting difficult person in quotation marks. And pretty soon in our inquiry, we came up with the answer. A difficult person, so-called, is someone with whom I have difficult experiences. <laughs> Do you feel the little shift there, just in saying it like that, right? It's actually, and we know that someone who was difficult five years ago, maybe because of my inner work, is not difficult now. How many have had an experience like that? Yeah, somebody, so you can, can relate to that, right? So that's a very important uh, clarification. Um, and what that leads us to focus on, that's not to say that there are some people whom a great number of people find difficult. Okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there are some people who have issues, but that um, the attention to our own experience has to be one of the main areas to look at. And so we may have difficult emotions, be reactive. Uh, that's what makes the situations challenging. Some of the ones that were related to last time might be that the other person might be uh, judgmental of me, might be you know, telling me I'm wrong with something, or there's a problem that I have, uh, uh, might be dismissive of me, dismissive of dismissive of me. Uh, another person pointed to uh, relations are difficult sometimes when their power imbalances. Uh, you know, when uh, I talk with someone who's in a authority role with me, a boss, or, you know, could be other kinds of power imbalances. Um, um, for some people, actually speaking skillfully in public can be hard because of the challenges of speaking publicly. And I, I don't know if I mentioned last time, I think I, I have some memory I might have, that uh, I you know, grew up somewhat introverted. And the first time I really gave a public talk, I was in my 20s, I think. I was in graduate school and I was giving a talk at like some you know, minor conference or something. And I was sitting there and um, my knees were shaking such that they would move back and forth like that. I had never seen anyone do that, but it was happening for me. I was so nervous with the situation. So public speaking can be hard sometimes when we feel, when we think, oh, I quote unquote, I feel ambushed, right? We were having just this normal conversation, so-called, and all of a sudden, wham, something, something happens. That can be difficult. How do we recenter ourselves? Uh, when we think that someone is misinterpreting what I'm saying. Uh, you know, um, yeah, we could probably go on like that, but those are, those are some of the ones we named last time. And I want to come back to some of those later, because I want to, what I'd like to do today is to have a more integrative sense of how with challenging speech situations, we combine inner resources along with skillful ways to speak. That's the focus today. 
we'll do some exercises. I may, if there's time, even do a role play or two, you know, which I haven't done role plays on Zoom, but it should be, it should be easy. Okay, so that's, that's what I want to focus on. So in um, one of the earlier sessions, I gave uh, eight guidelines for skillful speech when things are difficult. And I'll just mention these without going into much depth. The first is clarify one's intentions. You know, and this is where a pause can often be helpful. Or when you know that a situation might be difficult, let me formulate my intention before I even go into the meeting or the session or the discussion. Uh, you know, is my intention to get my way? Is it to understand? Uh, is it to uh, connect and so forth? Um, secondly, uh, the second and third are what we covered last time. This is more for a longer term challenge that we have. Do the inner work that arises in the challenges. So this might be to take some time separate from the actual discussion, to do inner work with my own anger, reactivity, sadness, anxiety, and what, whatever there is. Last time we looked particularly at anger and anxiety or fear. And we can do this in a variety of ways. We named them last time. Sometimes if, if the experience is fresh, we just meditate and the experience just comes right up. And we can work with it using mindfulness and inquiry can bring in, you know, loving kindness, compassion practice. The inner practices can be very vital. We can also sometimes deliberately bring up the material and work with it in an inner way. And of course we can there are, other, there are many other ways we can work with the inner material, and we named some of them last time, including working at the level of the body, working with the uh, judgmental mind, doing different practices. Some we might work with, you know, a, a friend, a helper, a coach, a therapist, whatever might be helpful with some of these. Some of these. So doing the inner work, and then also the third guideline. This is not in the same order I gave it a few weeks ago, but I'm, I reordered them. The third is, and maybe it comes before the second, is to be aware of any of our own conditioning that gets in the way of even being willing to, <clears throat> to take uh, difficult experiences as practice. This is to look into one's own conditioning towards, for example, conflict avoidance, which uh, I think when we looked looked at that, or I had a informal show of hands, it seemed to me the majority of the people here have that conditioning, and there might be ways of doing what's sometimes called spiritual bypassing to avoid dealing with difficult situations. You know, I'm above this, or I'll let it go. I'm spiritual. They're not so spiritual. So I'll just transcend all the difficulties, right? Uh, that could be what's called spiritual bypassing. And we, we looked at that uh, some. And then the uh, fourth through the sixth guidelines were to work with the foundations of wise speech, to work with the ethical guidelines, truthful, helpful, coming out of a good heart, good timing. Remember those, those are crucial. 
develop the capacity for presence and awareness in the midst of the uh, challenge, the difficulty, um, and bring in empathy. Uh, such a crucial practice. If we can bring in empathy, and we'll come, I'll come back to that later. Uh, if we can bring in empathy to the challenge, it changes everything. You know, because generally when we're triggered, reactive, judgmental, whatever, uh, empathy and any sense of connection with the heart goes out the window. And so empathy practice can be a way to bring that back. Then the seventh is a general consideration as much as possible. This goes back really to intention. Try to meet the needs of all, concer of all concerned. And the eighth is kind of a guideline is to do practice. I was mentioning earlier, do practice in role plays or do rehearsals. You know, ask a friend, could I'm having difficulties with this person, maybe my boss. Uh, would you be willing to act like my boss and let me try out some skillful things? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you how to say things which tend to get me triggered, right? One, it's so much fun. We do this in our wise speech retreats, uh, like sometimes for a day or two. We do, the, you know, have a lot of sessions, and I find it so much fun and a lot of aliveness when doing the role playing. It's also something done in social change movements. Uh, uh, Maybe sometime I can bring in, there's a wonderful video of the training in the civil rights movement by uh, um, uh, Reverend Lawson working in Nashville in 1960. And the role plays that he did, that was the most extensive training in nonviolence that occurred in the civil rights movement under the guidance of Reverend Lawson, who had studied uh, Gandhian nonviolence in India, brought it back to uh, work and he was working in uh, Nashville. And there's a wonderful video which shows his work there. And some of the great people uh, later in the civil rights movement came out of that. People like John Lewis, uh, Diane Nash, uh, James Bevel, and uh, and a number of others. So that's the, the eighth guideline. So how do how to bring uh, inner and outer practice together. That's the, that's the general suggestion I'm making to connect inner practice with outer practice. And we can do that by doing the inner practice separately from our being in speech and communication. But we can also bring inner practices into our being with others. You know, I already named one of them is that we can try to cultivate that sense of presence as we're speaking. Donald, are you still attentive to your body as you're speaking? Yes, pretty good. Okay, you know, or uh, we can we can check with being present. Uh, you know, I, I named I think a little while ago that there's an interesting model that that I I developed of skillful speech when you have two people involved. And there are five, uh, the optimal situation has five things that are working. I'm doing my own private inner work. I'm doing, I'm trying to do skillful speech. That's the first and second. Those are the first and second. Third and fourth, the other person's doing inner work and uh, also trying to uh, practice wise speech, skillful speech. And then fifth, we're being collaborative and cooperative together. 
if we, you know, ideally, we might be able to practice with someone and have all five of those operative. Most of our situations, we don't have all five operative, right? But I think we looked at a few times ago, we always can have at least two of them operative. Which are those two? The first two, right? I can always make my commitment. And this is sometimes a little bit counterintuitive. Sometimes we think the other person's like being a stone wall, just acting out, whatever. And I think I'll let my skillful speech practice go. But actually, very crucial, no matter what the other person is doing, keep with the first two. Really, really crucial. You know, because sometimes we think, ah, it's not working. And we, we just go into our habits, right? That's not so helpful. So keep that commitment to the first two. And then we can bring in the, the inner practices in a few ways. Uh, being present, being mindful. So I can know, okay, I'm in the middle of a conversation. I'm getting triggered, right? Or that didn't feel good. Some, some of you know a technique that's used in some groups where people, when something difficult happens, someone says, maybe someone says, says, ouch, right? Anyone been in groups where that's done? You can raise your hand. It's interesting, isn't it? You can, someone actually said, you know, someone said, maybe someone is um, judgmental of me. And my normal tendency might be to be reactive. But if I say, ouch, it's indicating that didn't feel good. But I'm not coming back with being judgmental of the other person being judgmental, which is often what will happen, right? If I'm reactive, the other person's reactive, I'm reactive, the other person's reactive again, I'm reactive again, and we're, we're in the loop, right? That's very common. So we want to find ways to break that loop. And so we can do that by something like that. It's a very interesting technique, just saying, ouch. You know, we have, might have to explain what the person means. When, that, when someone first did that with me, I thought the person was just being like California cute, you know, and had to have, had to have it explained to me. Anyway, um, so we can also have that pause. It's a wonderful way to have inner practice happening in the midst of interaction. Take a pause. It can be, you know, we can ask someone, you know, I'm feeling a little reactive. Can I, can we just pause for a moment? You know, and if we say it in somewhat neutral way, it's often be honored, you know, or we might say, I'm feeling really triggered. I think it's good just to take a break for a while. Would you be willing to do that? Something like that. So the pause is a way to recenter. We can actually sometimes go off and uh, take a minute or two, see, you know, get a sense of what's happening. If we're in a meeting, you can... Uh, one wonderful way to take a pause is to say, I have to go to the bathroom. Bathroom technique or bathroom break technique, really, really crucial, especially in groups. You know, take a bathroom break. It's very, very, uh, what, uh, socially unacceptable, especially if you go to the bathroom a lot for people to complain about how often you're going to the bathroom. But you can use it as a way to recenter yourself. And I'm joking a little bit, but it's actually... Uh, the principle is very important, the principle of pausing. Uh, we, during that pause, we can come back to our intentions. Very, very crucial. See, these are all ways 
of having some inner practice, even as we're in the midst of interaction. I can come back to my intentions. I can, again, a very crucial aspect is I can assess my level of reactivity. I can ask in the moment, I'm feeling reactive. Is it a nine or a 10 on a scale of one to 10? Or is it a three or four? I'm telling myself whether it's workable or not. That can be that level, that's a, we could call it a mindfulness technique. That can be very, very, very helpful. Uh, something else uh, that could be helpful would be to find ways of actually bringing some of these tools into consciousness in a group or with the other person and seeing if there can be some agreed upon guidelines. You know, it could be with a friend, uh, a partner, in a group you're in. Can we have some agreements about maybe about taking breaks, having pauses, uh, checking in with intentions? Uh, you know, when, when there are agreements in groups, it can be tremendously helpful for uh, working with challenges. And, you know, then there are others we could sometimes, maybe sometimes we go to right in the moment, go to empathy, where I go to feeling my body, or I give myself compassion. When we do these practices a lot, we can sometimes bring them in on the spot for 10 seconds, and they can be helpful. This depends on being having these practices uh, going. And one other inner practice, which I think we've done once, is the, the using the imagination. And we can do this sometimes on the spot, or if we take a break, or outside. This is where we use the imagination. And I think uh, when we did this some, some weeks ago, I imagine a wise person coming and exchanging bodies with me. And that wise person, and we can imagine, what does that white pers wise person do or say in the situation? So again, if we do use that practice a lot, we could take a bathroom break check in with the wise person and come back with a great strategy. Or we can do it, you know, if we're, if we have a day between meetings, we can do that as well. So I want to come back to um, empathy. And this is where we'll be um, using the sheet. I think in a few minutes, we'll use that sheet and piece of paper that I asked you to, to bring. So I want to say a little bit further about empathy. This will be reviewing some of what we've done. It can be a very powerful practice in challenging situations, both on the spot and after the fact. Okay, And I want to come back to um, bring in some elements of um, the discipline of nonviolent communication. And when I teach uh, or co-teach wise speech retreats with uh, Orin J. Sofer, we integrate uh, a lot of what I've been talking about with elements of nonviolent communication developed first by Marshall Rosenberg and, uh, you know, developed further by a number of his colleagues. And um, it can be a very skillful way of working. So I'll bring in a few elements of that now. One is in a difficulty, in difficult communications, when we're speaking with someone, we want to be careful with when we characterize, quote unquote, what happened. We want to, as much as possible, use 
something like neutral observation statements rather than statements which bring in a lot of interpretation. Okay, and again, this takes practice, and so we might say rather than, um, um, you know, when you were judgmental of me, I felt really pissed off. Is that using a neutral observation statement? Probably not. We might want to say more something like, we could quote the person, when you said this, that's neutral. That's a neutral observation. And there's a lot of skill in seeing what's neutral and what's not neutral. But generally, where there's interpretation, and particularly where the, where the interpretation may be judgmental, that will tend to cause people to be reactive or to want to correct our interpretation. And it's not usually a skillful way to speak during the communication. Uh, when there's something difficult. So we want to watch our language. And I probably could take a whole, in our retreats, we take a whole session on looking at observations. We could even, maybe I could even give a sample, a few samples and ask whether it's a, a neutral observation. Um, okay, I'll do this. Um, You come in late all the time. Is that an observation? Uh, why not? So we, we, we probably want, we want to look for whenever we use language like always, never, and associated terms, it's almost never uh, neutral because we're, we're generalizing in term, in relationship language. This is sometimes called tossing in the kitchen sink. You know, we, we bring in, we, we make it into, uh, you always do this rather than saying the last three times we've spoken, um, I it have been difficult for me. Is that a neutral observation? I think we could assume so. If I've touched with my own, uh, experience, right? So, but you always do this, not neutral, right? Um, let's see, another one. Um, you're so messy. Is that a neutral observation? No. Okay, that was, that was an easy one. What might be a way of... Uh, making, this might be something done with children, what might be a more neutral observation? When I came into your room, I noticed uh, a lot of papers on the floor, right? Rather than, you're so messy, right? So we want to watch the language and see as much as possible. Again, we could go into a lot of detail on this, but try to have neutral observation. And then in terms of empathy, we'll go back to the attention to uh, what are called in nonviolent communications emotions. They actually are called feelings. I like to use the language of call them emotions and needs. I like to use the language of what matters for our values. And so here, uh, Levi, we could have the first uh, screen share. And this is um, looking at emotions. And we want in a, we can, let's keep it up there for a while. And so we want to 
be able to notice when we're with someone else, and this can be, this is a part of the empathy practice, is to notice what the other person seems to be feeling, some interpretation, but generally we can be accurate. What am I feeling? What is the other person feeling? What are the emotions? And again, we can look at uh, different lists and see there are a whole set of different emotions could be under being peaceful, uh, being angry, being sad, uh, and so forth. Uh, we can let go of that, uh, Levi, and come back to the group. And particularly, we want to watch in our language our use of the phrase, I feel this or that. Because we can use that language, and in English, there's a lot of ambiguity, because in the English language, I don't know how this is in French, uh, in English, we can say, I feel, and we can either be indicating a thought, a body sensation, or emotion. How's that for ambiguity, right? And so, particularly, we want to look for language in which we say, I feel, and we're actually bringing in an interpretation rather than a direct report of an emotion. So I can say, here, here is some example. You know, I felt, uh, I felt coerced. That's not really a report of an emotion. That's giving an interpretation. I felt taken advantage of. What we want to do when people say that is see if we can hear the emotion connected with it. You know, I felt coerced. You know, I felt pressured, right? An emotion connected with that might be, uh, I felt uncomfortable, maybe. Or I felt uh, uh, anxious. Those are emotions. We want to watch out for the use of words that actually bring in interpretations rather than emotions, uh, both in the way we speak and in bringing empathy. And then the second area that we've looked at also is the area of needs. We can bring that uh, second slide on now. And here we have, uh, again, a bunch of categories. These are taken to be universally valid. These are universal, universally valid human needs. And we distinguish them from strategies, which are the ways we try to get needs. So an alcoholic, to give an example I think I've given before, has an authentic need for peace, but uses an unskillful strategy to find peace. And we can think of a lot of ways that, and this you can see how this will start to build empathy, because we can, we can start to get a sense, what's the underlying need, even if the other person is being unskillful? Is there a need for peace or for efficiency? Another example might be, I might be a uh, leader of a meeting, who is, to use the judgmental language, I'm a control freak, and I try to ram through the meeting so it goes really quickly and I get done what I want to get done. I may have an authentic need for efficiency, and my strategy might be to be dominating and controlling. So we want to look out for those distinctions. And so we can see there are a bunch of meanings that come under, the, or a bunch of meanings or a bunch of needs that come under on this handout, the category of 
authenticity, competence, uh, physical needs, of course, for air, food, health, autonomy, um, acceptance, belonging in a community, understanding, and so forth. So I can let go of the slide now. And I think uh, we did an exercise a few times ago where I spoke about something uh, and you gave empathy to me using this practice. So the practice is tune in to the emotions and tune in to the needs. And I think uh, I'll just do this for 30 seconds to remind us of the exercise. So I will talk about, um, I, I was, um, I've been growing some sunflowers and having to be very strategic in relationship to the squirrels because they really like the sunflowers. And I, I had six sunflowers growing. The squirrels got three of them before they even were more than a, a foot high. And then I used a different strategy. I put netting around it. And eventually uh, the, the sunflowers got quite big, got to be five or six feet high. And then one day I noticed one of my sunflowers was beheaded. And so I put more, anyway, cut. Okay, so you can see some of the emotions might have been what? Uh, excitement, what? Uh, happiness about the sunflowers, anxiety about the squirrels and the sunflower. And what were some of the needs that were there? Maybe uh, I'm answering myself just to uh, be efficient with the time. You know, so... What were some of the needs that I have? You can put it in the chat. Yeah, people are doing that. Uh, safety. Uh, yeah, safety for the sunflowers. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, maybe my own sunflower seed stock would be the need for good nutrition. I don't know. You can, you can see. You can see where we're going with this. So here's where I want you now to um, take your sheet of paper First, think of a situation in which uh, you have had some conflict or difficulty in a speech situation with another person. The level of difficulty on a scale of one to 10 should be maybe in the middle, four or five or six, not the nine or 10. And I should say that one of the main ways that we grow in our skill with difficult speech situations is taking the low level or moderate level difficulties as our training ground. If we only go to the really difficult ones, we're actually probably not gonna learn much. Go to the moderate level difficulties and actually bring these practices in. So think of a situation, four or five or six. Okay, raise your hand if you have a situation in mind. Okay, looks like most people. Now take your sheet of paper, and we did a version of this. Divide it into four quadrants. Can you see the four quadrants? Okay, divide it into four quadrants. And then uh, the two left-hand quadrants, you can label... Uh, you can label that those are yourself. Label them me and the two right-hand quadrants, the other person. 
And then this is an empathy practice. Try to have a sense in that difficult, in the, imagine a difficult moment that was there. What are one or two of my emotions? What are one or two of my needs? What are one or two of the other person's emotions? What are one or two of the other person's needs? So do that right now. We'll take a few minutes. And just find one or two for each of the four quadrants, maybe completed in about a minute or so. Raise your hand if you're if you've if you've done if you're done now, or pretty much done. Okay, let's take just take uh, 15 more seconds or so. And I think and we'll have the discussion in just a few moments. I think we'll come back to this. I want to just give a few examples of being, uh, really asking how to be skillful with some of the examples that we mentioned initially. I want to tell first a story. I'll try to tell this briefly, and then I'll give a few examples. This is a true story of um, something from my own experience, okay? Uh, two of the last three years, I've been invited to teach in um, Israel. I've gone, so I've gone there twice. And I've also uh, visited in the West Bank, uh, three, three trips to the West Bank as well, and got a pretty good sense of everything there. And I was invited, I, I was teaching retreats and giving talks. And one of the talks I was invited to teach was in Jerusalem. And I asked them, what should I talk about? And I gave them some samples and they chose, they said, why don't you talk about being skillful with conflict? So I had, we might say, the chutzpah to have announced a talk on being skillful with conflict, which I gave in Jerusalem. Okay, there, there it was. And 
what happened during the talk, there was a young man who um, actually kept on interrupting me at the beginning. And I had remembered an experience which I had had several years before that I had learned from, where I was also actually also teaching on skillful with conflict. And two people started, I, I wanted to present this whole approach, but two people started interrupting me. And I actually, I'm not sure I ever finished the talk because they were questioning some of my assumptions. And I never got through, you know, there were 30 or 40 people there. So, but these two people were just insisting on intervening. And I, after the experience, which was a difficult one, I and others uh, discussed, well, you were actually having a conflict. Why don't you apply what you were teaching on the spot right there, which I did not do. But I remember that experience and it served me well in Jerusalem. So in the, in the moment in Jerusalem, I actually, right from the start, when this guy was interrupting me, probably interrupted me 10 times, you know, and was just hardly letting me proceed. And you could see other people were getting frustrated and not knowing what to do. And I said, the way to go here is to really connect with this guy and have empathy and try to tune in and really see what was there. And I did that a number of different times. And particularly when I did it one time, and we actually, we took a break, took some time, what's really important for you? And he felt heard. And after that, the interruption stopped, right? And it was interesting because after the talk, a lot of people said, I learned much more from how you were than what you said, right? It was very, very interesting. And so... That's, it's really coming, empathy is such a powerful tool. That was my main tool with that, was really to empathically connect with that. It's a, something if one's a teacher or leader, it's a major tool to work with when there is some kind of conflict going on in a group or, or in a community. And so that would, that's, that's one example. And I thought I'd give maybe one other example what do you do, what to do when what appear to be uh, expressions of judgmental mind are coming towards you? We looked at this some last time. And I wanted just to say, and I'll, I think I'll close with this, that so much in these situations depends on the context. So it's very, very helpful to know what's the context. What's my relationship with this person? Do I have the basis for uh, saying certain things. And so it's helpful to know, you know, you know, with, with someone, I think I mentioned last time, I have one friend and we, all the time, we say, you know, someone can say, you know, that, felt, that, that didn't feel good. Can we look at this? And we're able to do that, right? You can't, you can't do that with everyone. I can't do that with everyone. So know what kind of a relationship there is. Some relationships, you can do that. Some of them, the other person uh, doesn't have any sense of inner practice, right? So the context is going to change everything. 
you know, and so I think clarifying the context is really important. So if someone's being judgmental towards me, with some people I, I could actually say, could we stop for a moment? That didn't feel good. I'm wondering what's going on with you, right? And we could do that. Another person, maybe where there's not that kind of agreement, uh, uh, you might say, um, I don't know, it's all going to depend on the context, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you could reframe that and do that in terms of what's important to you. I don't know, that could be a way of working with it, right? And so that, that may or may not be possible, right? So, uh, gosh, if we had another hour or two, I would do some role plays now, but why don't I just open it up to uh, uh, any discussion, sharing of what came up for you doing the exercise we did with empathy, anything about anything we've explored. And we have a, have a nice chunk of time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.